The American Cinematographer Podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, Epic Games Los Angeles lab director Connie Kennedy and American Cinematographer's own virtual production editor Noah Kadner join us to talk about the confluence of practical and virtual production and help shed some light on what virtual production actually is and isn't. This is adding to our toolkit. This is giving us the opportunity to create experiences that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise because now you can create worlds in a way that you never could before. But first, the January 2023 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now, with a cover featuring cinematographer Russell Carpenter ASC and director James Cameron on the set of Avatar, The Way of Water, photographed by Iva Leonard, courtesy of 20th Century Studios. Our feature story dives into the complex production of their blockbuster 3D science fiction sequel and is available to read at theasc.com for all AC subscribers and ASC members. Also in this issue, Roger Deakins, ASC, BSC, continues his collaboration with director Sam Mendes on the English drama Empire of Light. Florian Hofmeister, BSC, uses custom optics created by Christoph Hofsten of Airy Rental Berlin to capture the portrait of a complex character in Tar for director Todd Field. And Eric Messerschmidt, ASC, and J.D. Dillard discuss filming the inspirational story of a pioneering U.S. Navy pilot in Devotion. Also in this issue, a look back at the outstanding career of famed still photographer and ASC associate member Douglas Kirkland. Cinematographer Natasha Breyer, ASC, ADF, and director Maria Schrader discuss the creative partnership they formed on the set of She Said. And writer-director James Gray details his close working relationship with Darius Kanji, ASC, AFC, on the feature Armageddon Time. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skills, this five-day seminar is taught by top directors of photography in person at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities, with all necessary equipment provided. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques, as well as instruction in current workflow practices. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. Upcoming sessions in 2023 will take place May 22nd to the 26th. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. Connie Kennedy began her career as a feature film location manager and unit production manager in British Columbia, Canada. Before joining Epic Games as the director of their LA Innovation Lab, Kennedy was an executive producer for Profile Studios, where she managed film and game budgets and organized resources for virtual production across many different types of media. Noah Kadner is the virtual production editor at American Cinematographer Magazine and the author of the Virtual Production Field Guide series for Epic Games. He is the host of the Virtual Production Podcast, a senior writer for industry leaders, and has extensive practical experience in the areas of motion pictures, broadcast, streaming, and virtual production. 
Connie and Noah, welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Very happy to be here. Connie, I want to start by asking you, um, what kinds of virtual production innovations are happening at the Epic Games LA Lab? Well, I think mostly what we're involved in at the moment is trying to develop the Unreal Engine with features that are the best they can be for ICVFX. And uh, that process depends a lot on the different productions that are in progress and the feedback that we get from them. And then as we get feedback from them, we're constantly fixing bugs and coming up with new ideas and improving the way in which we are both creating content and also operating stages. It's really a community effort is probably the best way to say it. Now, what kinds of productions do you see coming through the lab? You know, the lab is really set up for testing and R&D. Um, we don't really bring in productions per se, but one thing that we are doing is setting up workshops so that we can bring people who are in production together as a community and we can listen to what their experiences are and we can talk to them about the latest innovation that we're involved in and then we can talk to them about how they might uh, integrate that into their own workflow. It seems significant that Epic is a video game company innovating in the motion picture medium and that games and motion pictures would intersect was inevitable, but exactly how was less clear. What was the turning point in your estimation? If I was to pinpoint a moment and talk about a project, it would have to be The Mandalorian. That was a moment when we brought people in the film business, in visual effects with ILM, Lucasfilm, and Epic Games, Lux Machina, Fuse. I mean, there there were so many people that came together at that moment. And it was really exciting because, you know, I have to say that no one really knew how it would go. But what was wonderful was that everybody was willing to give it a try and the studio was willing to put the money towards trying it. And, and I think if I was to pinpoint a time, that would be the moment. But really, when I look at virtual production as a whole and the way that tools and gaming began to be intersected into the workflow for film and television, it was really farther back from that. It was more to do with what we were doing with Avatar, uh, what we were doing with World of Warcraft, uh, Avengers. We were doing something called Simulcam. And that's when we started to realize that, hey, you know, we can put virtual environments, virtual characters and live action together. And then it became important to figure out how do we all work together and make decisions in real time? And I think, you know, in the gaming workflow, the, people were used to that. They were used to looking at the environment and using um, virtual characters and virtual environments and making decisions together. But it wasn't the case in film and television. So this became a new process. And I would say it's really with 
those kinds of projects that we began to realize that we were embarking on a whole new era. And then I think with the Mandalorian and the integration of LED walls, which have been used for years in broadcasting, you know, all of a sudden we were in a situation where we had the ability to render more quickly using um, hardware, graphics cards that could render composited imagery in a way that we'd never seen before. And we had a game engine where we could composite all of these elements in real time. We've been working on the ability to make decisions about lighting. Uh, all of these things continue to evolve and make it possible for it to be a faster and more effective real-time workflow. You you mentioned the term real-time uh, a few times, and it seems that a key component of what makes virtual production work is that it's in real-time. What is the significance of this development? The significance is the way it informs collaboration. I think, you know, the more we can have people who used to be siloed, in, whether it was with post-production or people who are in production who aren't necessarily able to be there during production, especially production designers, people in the art department, people who are normally, or not normally, but traditionally um, involved in pre-production and prep are now there in real time making decisions with people who are actually involved in the production and we're bringing what used to be punted to post-production into the pre-production process and also into production. So what happens is all of a sudden you have everyone able to make a decision about lighting, blocking, performance, the look of um, the entire picture. You've got all the important people to that decision-making process on the stage, standing there in real time, making those decisions together. Noah, there seems to be some confusion about what virtual production actually is. Um, In-camera visual effects, or ICVFX, is a key element, right? Working on a volume with LED walls. But it's more than that. It's also more than that. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, obviously... In-camera visual effects with LED walls has been extremely popular over the past few years, thanks in no small part to successes of shows like The Mandalorian. And it has kind of led to this sort of equating that term to mean virtual production, when in fact it's actually a subset of virtual production. And that as a term is something that's been around for well over a decade now, um, coming up, actually coming up on 15 years, originally coined during the production of the movie Avatar back in 2009 to essentially refer to any sort of activity in which physical filmmaking and digital visual effects were happening simultaneously, as opposed to you film a green screen and later you kind of put the background in in post-production, taking guess while you're filming it what it's actually going to look like. It's the idea that there's some aspect of the filmmaking in which that post-process comes into the live action workflow. So some other examples of virtual production, in addition to in-camera visual effects, are things like Simulcam, 
where you might be superimposing using real-time animation tools, some sort of digital environment on top of the live camera feed that a, that a cinematographer is looking at. Um, some of the other areas are just all kinds of visualization, like pre-vis, post-vis, tech-vis, just all these ways in which we're taking these real-time tools and, and using them to kind of create provisional imagery that assists the live action production. Things like motion capture, you know, again, coming back to Avatar, that was kind of their big thing was mixing together motion capture, simulcam, and essentially having a really solid preview of the movie that they were filming as they were making it with a lot of the elements that would be added later in post-production kind of brought forward, at least in sort of a proxy way. So, you know, I mean, it's it's one of those things that's been hiding in plain sight in the movie business for years. It just suddenly became very popular. And, and I think that may be why people are equating those two terms. But yeah, I mean, if we could set the record straight, uh, virtual production is sort of the spectrum of which in-camera visual effects is just one flavor. Where else is virtual production being employed outside the theatrical and television-based mediums? And which industries are driving the biggest innovations in virtual production? Uh, I mean, I, I could I could say a few words. I mean, obviously, Connie knows this world better than anybody. But but it ha this happens to be very fresh in my mind because I'm I'm um, we're we're doing a couple of these stories for an upcoming issue of the magazine. But it seems to me, and and you know, uh, maybe you you could comment on on this uh, as well, Connie. But it it seems to me like things like um, concerts, award shows, live sports are really kind of driving people in the sense of there will be some kind of virtual production technology that's used in a way that is not necessarily how you might use it in filmmaking, but has potential, let's just say. Like, for example, you know, LED screens as something you would actually film in front of a camera, that's been around. If you watch shows like, you know, Sports Center or, you know, anything of that sort of genre, you will have seen a stage that probably, or even, you know, just regular news uh, broadcasts, you will have seen a, a studio that might have some LED screens on it to be used as displays, backgrounds, what have you. They don't, but they were never meant to be realistic. It was always meant to be like, here's a really beautiful looking big display in the background that has some bearing on what it is we're broadcasting. And that ultimately, I think, at least validated the possibility that if the screens got to the point where the resolution was high enough and the quality of the imagery that's being generated was sufficiently realistic enough that you could actually use it in place of something like a green screen or in place of something like a miniature or uh, in place of something like a matte painting. And so I feel like that's still happening today. There's a number of new stories that I'm tracking that are using even more cutting-edge virtual production techniques for broadcast use that may not necessarily look realistic or have a, an application to filmmaking per se by, you know, at first sight, but I think have a lot of potential. So I, I don't know. Does that jibe with your experience, Connie? Oh, yeah. And, and I think what I would, I would add to that by saying that really these visualization techniques, which is really what we're talking about, we're using them for all different purposes. So it may be that we're using them for augmented and virtual reality with us with sports, but um, which is what you're describing. Or we're using um, different photographic backgrounds so that we can um, create the illusion of a car going to multiple locations within minutes. And, you know, illusions like that that are, are really cool for advertising and that kind of thing. 
But I think what's really exciting is the way these tools are being used in order to visualize a more sophisticated project where you need to figure out where you're going to put your time, your money, your resources, and how are you going to know how to do that without being able to see something in advance. And I think the way that these tools are being used with production designers and art departments, whether they're prepping uh, an event, a theme park, a movie, a television show, or a game, all these tools can be used in the same manner to be able to um, help create the roadmap and create the style and the look and all of the things that can otherwise be really time-consuming and expensive and prohibitive depending on your budget. So if you're able to get a fantastic looking image and really drive a story point and be able to pitch that to a studio and say, this is the way this movie is going to look. This is how the characters are going to look inside this environment. This is how it can be integrated into um, a fantastical setting and then a realistic setting. And this is how it will all look together those visuals go so far to being able to sell your idea in a way that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And I, I think that is a really, really exciting aspect of the way these tools are uh, being used. And then I would also go as far as to say that there's all kinds of things in the future that we're headed for with um, these tools in, in the sense that we're going to be able to create a film that is like a passive experience that will become a more interactive experience. And I think that is a really, really exciting prospect for the future because of the way in which we're developing tools that allow for that. They allow for us to make these different kinds of immersive experiences simultaneously. And I think that's going to, you know, depending on the way in which we distribute those experiences, that's going to be leading us into this kind of transmedia world that we still have yet to define. Is that something that you're working on at the Innovation Labs is not just the virtual production, but also the distribution of this transmedia? I wouldn't say necessarily that we're working on distribution directly. Um, we certainly are with with Fortnite. Um, that is, you know, that's our domain. Um, but there are a lot of projects, of course, that we wouldn't have any control over exactly how the distribution would be. But we can certainly help drive that distribution with the tools we're creating. Well, distribution, I guess, um, for an immersive experience might uh, would would like implementation be a better term? Oh yeah, I, I'm. We're involved in so many industries. We have tools that are being used with architecture and automotive, fashion, all you know, various types of AR and VR experiences. I mean, it's honestly exploding right now because people are discovering that these tools are so wonderful for being able to create experiences that we wouldn't have otherwise if you were just 
rooted in the in the real environment. What are some of the ways that cinematographers can take advantage of virtual production beyond what we've just already discussed here? Like you mentioned simulcam. What's the potential, let's say, for virtual cameras and lenses? Are we going to see software-based film stocks or real-time virtual optics? You know, is there a place for light field photography and virtual production? Given that Noah is a cinematographer, <laughs> I would think, Noah, I'd love to hear your your point of view. I mean, we're certainly developing tools uh, for lighting. Uh, it's one of the most important things that we're doing with the engine right now. And um, But I, I think it would be really interesting to hear from you, Noah, about how you are seeing this in production right now and how that's working for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously cinematography at its core is is kind of the collection of imagery using some kind of an apparatus. I mean, <laughs> that's something that hasn't changed for well over a century. What has changed is what that apparatus or that, you know, that motion picture camera is capable of doing versus capturing a series of still images that we project back and you 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 get a persistence of vision and it appears as though you're watching motion does that mean we're talking about things like avatar where they're filming they're not capturing imagery but they're capturing motion and then transferring that motion into the movements of of digital characters and presenting that in in 3D and also high frame rate i i think as we continue down this road we're going to see more things coming around that allow us to experience stories in ways that go way beyond that sort of 2D presentation. You know, whether that means we'll all be wearing headsets, whether that means we'll all be wearing AR glasses, that remains to be seen. That technology has been around for a while now too, and no one has been able to really popularize it in a way that makes the mainstream want to go check it out. When Avatar came out in 2009, the first Avatar, it it seemed like we were on the verge of all movies being shot in 3D because that movie was so successful taking advantage of that medium. And for a brief time, a lot of movies were being shot in 3D. But I think there was some pushback on the part of a lot of filmmakers that it was it added so much additional technical hassle for not really a big difference as far as the way the audience would experience it because ultimately a lot of people weren't even seeing these movies in 3D anyway because they either didn't feel like putting on the glasses or it wasn't available in their area or whatever. And so it, it seems like there's going to be opportunities to tell stories in completely new ways that a cinematographer's sort of artistic eye will absolutely still be very useful for. It's just a, it, it's, it's kind of, I, I think the cinematographer's always been meeting the audience wherever they end up being. And so as we see these new technologies and ways to participate come down the pipe, uh, you know, like I, I spent a good chunk of this holiday break playing this game called The Last of Us, which with my son, which is all about, you know, this insane situation of p people trying to survive a, a kind of post-apocalyptic world. And it's but it's really, you know, it's 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 the way it's presented is really very cinematic. And it, it, I, I wasn't even actually bothering to control it. My son was playing it the whole time. But we, you know, my wife and I were just watching him play. And we were really into it as much as you would be any movie. And you could see there had been a lot of time spent on that presentation to make it look striking and cinematic and not just kind of flat and, you know, 
boring presentation. So yeah, I, I, I can only see those opportunities continuing on, but the artistry that goes into eliciting an emotional response through the way something is depicted is, is always going to be, you know, important, I think. Yeah, the way in which uh, the challenge becomes integrating virtual and real environments and people and characters and inanimate objects and being able to blend this in a way that if certainly if you're trying to do something that's photo real and you're using ICV effects and you're using an LED wall, all of those challenges have to do with the way in which we're interpreting what it should look like. And, and so, you know, it's interesting when you talk to different cinematographers that it's not a kind of paint by numbers process. It's not like, oh, here's the formula. This is what you do. There's still a lot of room to make decisions based on your own artistic sensibility. And that's both in the computer and on the stage physically. And that it's really interesting to watch a team trying to work with that because what I've discovered is that people aren't necessarily looking for the perfect solution. They're looking for some, they're looking for the imperfection that actually makes it work. And that's something that's much more subtle and consequently difficult to communicate, difficult to collaborate around and difficult to ultimately execute. So, um, but it's, but it's, that's what makes this so exciting is because you're watching all of these different creative people um, work together to try and explore what this is and how it works and how to make it benefit the story as best they can. So um, I think we have a long way to go, but I think we'll, you know, we'll quickly um, getting through enough projects where we're starting to share our experiences and realize what's working and what's not. You mentioned, Connie, um, that one of the things that you're working on right now um, is lighting. And I know that uh, with the big Unreal Engine 5.0, 5.1 update, that a lot of upgrades were made to the way the engine renders light. Can you talk a little bit about those developments and the way that light has evolved in this environment? Um, I think probably the simplest way to, to put it is that we're trying to automate as much of this as we can. You know, I, I think when you're when you're trying to make changes that are responding, that are changes that are responding to what you're doing physically and what you're doing virtually, and you're trying to blend this together, and replicate what happens in the physical world in the virtual world, it's complicated because there's a domino effect. Every time you move a prop, every time there's a reflection on a window, every time there's there's something that happens on water um, or the glint of an eye or the way um, light falls on someone's face, all of those things have to be coordinated between the virtual and physical world. And so we're, we're working to develop tools that will make changes based on certain principle, physical principles. And that takes a long time. So 
um, we're in the process of developing tools that will make that simpler and faster and more accurate. And so we have 5.1 is the version that just came out in the engine with Lumen and Nanite. And 5.1.1 will be even more refined. And by 5.2, we'll have even more tools. But this is a this is constantly evolving. And um, it's something that we what we discover, depending on the environment, the virtual environments that people are working in, it presents new problems and requires new solutions. And so we're, we're listening to people's experiences every day and trying to respond as best we can with changes to the tools and um, new developments with the features that make this um, easier and better. Is there a correlation between, let's say, the learning curve of understanding how the Unreal Engine works and the adoption curve? Like, do you spend a lot of time having to explain to people who maybe don't have a lot of experience with video games, like what a game engine is and why it's significant that it works in real time, you know, and that um, you're able to coordinate the virtual and the practical using this technology. You know, the word game <laughs> is sometimes the issue. Uh, I think people who don't, who aren't aware of what a game engine is. I think the word game is a little bit distracting at times, but then when you when you do understand that what the game engine is really doing, that it's actually something that's allowing us to composite different elements together in one you know, final render, then people start to realize, oh, all these things that used to be segregated, we're now talking about looking at it together as a whole. And when you when you begin to understand that is what's so exciting about this, that's what's making it possible to use virtual elements in real time and be able to make changes in real time. You know, you want to move a rock or change the position of a tree. You want to maybe uh, change the time of day. All of those things become a really exciting option when you're in the middle of a creative process. And I, I think when people begin to realize this is what is a new experience for filmmakers, then they start to understand how to make strategic decisions about when to use this because I think what happens is that people think that this is going to replace everything that we're doing in any creative process so we're never going to go on location again for a movie well that's that's not the case this is adding to our toolkit this is giving us the opportunity to create experiences and add story points that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise because now you can create worlds and experiences and add them to the story in a way that you never could before. We've talked about The Mandalorian and we've talked about Avatar in passing, but what are some of the ways that an independent filmmaker can take advantage of virtual production? Um, well, I mean, 
it's it's exactly that. You know, I, I've actually interviewed a number of filmmakers who didn't necessarily have an amazing amount of resources, but found ways to leverage these tools either by making a project, say, entirely in Game Engine or finding a way to tap into some aspect of the Game Engine's capabilities, like maybe making a movie using mocap or using it to create visual effects for their film. But yeah, I mean, that to me, that is one of the most exciting pieces of it is, first of all, you're talking about software that's free because its bread and butter is making video games. So it, you're, you're, kind of get, you're kind of getting a free ride on the coattails of the video game industry by using this as a filmmaking tool because it's it, they've been generous enough to give it away for free. And, and it really does stack up quite impressively to a lot of other tools that are quite honestly, quite prohibitively expensive to someone working at the indie level. So it, it it's terms like democratization do get thrown about quite a bit, but I, I think in this instance, it, it really is appropriate because if you have access to a computer that can play video games, you pretty much have everything you need to make a movie exactly the way you want to imagine it. And so taking that against, say, 20, 30 years ago, where the means of filmmaking were you got your hands on a film camera, maybe you got some short ends of film somewhere and, you know, scrambled together enough cash to develop it and process it. You still had a long way to go before you could make something that would stand next to the Hollywood sort of standard of filmmaking. Whereas today, just, just for the price of a computer and using this software, you can make something that absolutely, I mean, you could easily remake Star Wars if you really wanted to or something along those lines without breaking a sweat. It's just, you know, it's it comes down to just raw talent and ambition, which is very exciting because, yeah, filmmaking in general is such an expensive endeavor that it, it, it is a little bit rarefied into, into who actually gets the opportunity to make movies. So by taking that away and sort of providing this open possibility hopefully we'll see you know more and more interesting stories being told by people that might never have had the chance to even consider themselves filmmakers just because the lift to get to all those resources that used to be required was so high they just kind of gave up and did something else entirely or maybe wrote books or whatever so that to me is the most exciting part and you know i think you're going to see that happen more and more as the tools become even easier and more accessible to use hopefully you know the tent will continue to grow greater and greater that more people will come in. Yeah. And I would add to that, Noah, that we're creating a very high quality level of content that's also available to people for virtually no money. And then you can either use it as is or build on top of it. But you're starting at a point where it's optimized to a level that used to take months to create. So that's giving independent filmmakers the opportunity to create something really great as well. So you've got environments. Now we're you know, introducing metahumans into the engine. Pretty soon, everything will be there. Everything you need will be there in order to, to offer people the opportunity to make all kinds of different stories with marketplace assets that they have access to. And um, I think I think it's it's only just beginning to be something that's accessible to everyone everywhere. And also, people are able to work together and collaborate 
no matter where they live. So when we're also not restricted by a physical location. So there's a, a confluence of a number of different changes that are making it possible for people to make very high quality content on an independent level. Right. And when you say metahumans, we're talking about the the high resolution, very realistic looking human models. Yeah. The exciting thing is that they're completely rigged. They're ready to go. And um, and that's a revolutionary change. So we're going to begin to see all kinds of really exciting changes with uh, with what the MetaHuman Initiative is bringing to the engine. What is virtual production not good for? It's not going to solve all. It's not going to solve all your problems. And like you were saying, it's not going to replace location shooting, right? It doesn't need to replace anything. The most important thing is to choose the right tool for the job, I think is what it comes down to. If you have a story where a location just doesn't exist in the real world, um, then of course you're going to need to do something else. And if you decide that that you don't have the money to create a photo real environment or photo real characters for your story, then you can choose to do it stylistically in a way that might make it less expensive and less labor intensive. There's a variety of different ways to um, represent your story visually um, around whatever budget you have. And that's the challenge. That's what's exciting. I mean, you can see people who create equally emotional and gripping stories with all different types of visual representation. So I think virtual production is giving people the opportunity to tell their stories in a myriad of different ways. Yeah, yeah. As we've seen and, you know, been celebrating over the past few years, if there was anything I would say it's not good at, it's not good for the kind of filmmaking style that's very off the cuff in the sense of if you're a kind of filmmaker who likes to just show up in the morning and sort of like suss it out as you go and like, oh, let's go over here and let's go over there. You you could find yourself not so happy in one of these setups because it, it, it's, it's like the preparation that goes into a successful, especially something like in-camera VFX, is cannot be overstated. So, you know, the the more that you um the more that you can visualize how you're going to do something, plan it, and have everything prepared so that when you get to the day, then you have that flexibility. I mean, you look, you know, we were talking about Avatar. You look at Avatar 2. That's been in prep for, you know, almost a decade, really. I mean, Cameron and I obviously started thinking about it the, the instant he finished the first one, and it's taken him all this time. And so, you know, you see that movie in two plus hours, what is it, almost three hours, and it goes by really quick, and you're like, oh, it feels really spontaneous and off the cuff, and it's like, no. This, every bloody frame of this movie was agonized over for years to make it look that way, which, you know, is his specialty. But it, that that would be the one area. It's like, be prepared. Uh, one thing we haven't discussed is iteration is something that virtual production is really good for. Having the shot there that you can iterate over and over and over and over and over again until you get it perfect. Yeah, there's, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. It's also a dangerous thing. <laughs> Because you can um, put too much time 
into something that may end up not even being in the movie. So, you know, there's a, there is a danger in, in, um, in that to a certain extent. I think, you know, what, what Noah's pointing out is that it's really important to have a clear roadmap and have an idea as to how much prep time is required. And I think given that a lot of this is new to people, sometimes that is really difficult to assess. And uh, and it, it couldn't be more important. It's the difference between success or not, uh, whether or not you're you're allowing enough time to create the content and whether you're you're locked in because if you start making changes once you've gotten into production and you're not ready with those assets and you've got a crew that is ultimately going to be standing around waiting for that, that that's not going to be a good um, situation. So, you know, I think this is the, this is probably one of the biggest challenges right now is that people, you know, previously have been, making movies often often where they're even writing the script as they're shooting. And that's not a workflow that would work um, when you need to have these assets ready to go well in advance. And that means approvals across all departments and budget approvals across all departments. Do you think that that's um, something to work towards for the future so that filmmakers who do... Because, you know, you know, we talked about routine solutions, you know, and there, there are no routine solutions, uh, especially with filmmaking. And so do you think that eventually someday working within the Unreal Engine, working with virtual production will allow filmmakers that kind of spontaneity? Uh, I mean, I personally think, I mean, it's there already. I mean, definitely, if you have an environment that's been created with some flexibility built into it, for example, you know, something where you didn't just build one view, but you built the view that's technically behind the camera because if somebody's like, let's do a reverse shot, you can just be like, no problem. And I think that, and I've already seen this, I've already seen tools that are starting to scratch the surface of this. An area that we're going to collide into at some point inevitably is, is kind of things like AI and generative art. I suspect, you know, within a few years, it will be very conceivable that you could be on a set in one environment and just say, wouldn't it be great if it was this instead? And it'll be like, bleh, bleh, and it'll just be there. Like there won't be, there won't be somebody modeling that. There won't be somebody like, oh, let me rearrange that. The the computer and the application that you're working with will ultimately just understand those kinds of natural language prompts and be able to, to vastly alter the environment as you go. And so, yeah, I mean, right now we're in that moment where there's more of a heavy lift to build those environments and make those assets, and there's a lot more people involved, and there's a lot more work involved. But I suspect that process will be streamlined and greatly assisted by what we're already starting to see a lot of in terms of generative art, just because computers will be getting better and better at just understanding requests made not using their language, which is a lot of kind of esoteric commands and things like that, but just will understand exactly what you're describing and just do it. It feels like we're still accelerating through this adoption curve on the track of virtual production, uh, but we haven't hit the straightaway yet. 
other than the LA Lab or American Cinematographer, what are some of the resources available to filmmakers and creators who want to learn more about virtual production or, or maybe even take the wheel and help drive the technology forward? You know, I think there's a number of different schools and we're supporting them who are developing different types of virtual production curriculum. And, and we're, we're starting to try and connect the dots between all of them so that they can collaborate on what it is that they're developing to, um, to teach. And so I would say a number of different companies, um, SCAD, Pixamondo, Final Pixel, Disguise, View, you know, there's a, a number of companies that have set up great academies and they, they're building a wealth of material. The VES is working on a, a really nice glossary and that's helping people understand what's meant by all the new terminology that's coming up. The Software Academy, there's a number of different organizations that are working on helping people to collaborate around all this new information that is kind of being curated by all these different schools and associations. So I think something like the LA Lab magazine or the American Cinematographer magazine, we're all trying to help people understand where to go to find that information. Noah, any anything to add? Yeah, I mean, filmmaking has always been a, a very collaborative effort. I mean, it's it's extremely challenging. Even if you are this sort of auteur type, it is very challenging to make a film without involving other people in some way. And so there's always been a lot of back and forth as far as sharing of techniques and, and you know, cutting edge sort of workflows, which is something we obviously cover constantly in American Cinematography. You've got people at a very high level kind of breaking down exactly what they've done in a, in a finished product so that you can possibly emulate what they're trying to do or at least better understand what it is you're looking at. And with virtual production, I've never seen that taken to such an insane level of openness. All this stuff, it's almost like this fully formed industry appeared overnight and people are just trying to understand it and, and kind of get their heads around it because they want to use it because they are impressed with its capabilities. And so, yeah, I've, I, I it, it's it seems a way above and beyond what I'm used to seeing as far as how much people are willing to share with their time and, and you know, explain to others what's working. And so, yeah, it's it's a great opportunity right now. I mean, if you have the slightest interest in this stuff, there are so many places to go to learn more and there's so many ways to get hands-on experience, you know, that it, as far as breaking into an industry like filmmaking, there's, there's to my to my humble opinion, it's never been a more fertile time just because there's so much interest around it. And it seems like there's still this major gap in terms of people that have that unique combination of skills that allows them to be capable of doing camera in-camera VFX you know, at a level that's demanded of by these productions. And so there, you know, there's a strong motivation in a lot of the companies that, that Connie just mentioned to bridge that gap and, and train people up as quickly as possible. So if you want to surf the wave, you know, I still like I'm still like I'm selling the Kool-Aid here. And, and in some ways, maybe I am. But uh, it, it's it's a great time to get into it, I would say, more more than I've ever seen in my whole career. And I, and I would also add to that to say that what's really exciting is that it's global. 
So this is something that's happening everywhere at the same time. And what's wonderful is it's giving an opportunity for people to tell stories that are specific to a variety of different cultural contexts, which makes it really rich and interesting. And I can't wait to see what people come up with. Yeah, it's a super exciting time to be a filmmaker. And Connie and Noah really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and uh, talking about it. And uh, just thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Great to talk to you. Oh, yes, my pleasure. was Connie Kennedy and Noah Kadner talking about the state of virtual production. A complete transcript is available in the show notes at theasc.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. And you can visit the ASC.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews, archival stories, notes on new products and services, the ASC store, just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. This episode was recorded by Chai Tamayo, and mixed by Robert Granis at Brickshop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.